Listener Production. Today's the day. We've been working on this project for about eight months. Um, we are eternally grateful to John Farnham for supporting this ad and the movement. So there it is, the announcement that The Voice will be used to promote The Voice, something a lot of people have been pointing out for a long time. Why not use Johnny Farnham's track? Well, they are. And in this episode, we're actually going to find out where the song came from. And there is a really surprising and quite funny backstory to this song. Turns out John Farnham didn't write the song. It wasn't even written by an Australian. It was actually some British songwriters that wrote John Farnham's biggest hit. And the inspiration for those songwriters, well, it wasn't going to a protest, but actually sleeping in and missing a protest. We'll get the full story from Zan Rowe from Double J. You'll also hear one of Australia's most successful political advertising campaigners give her take on whether this song will make a difference to the campaign for the referendum. First, here are today's headlines with Katrina Blowers. It is Tuesday, the 5th of September. Well, today is RBA Governor Philip Lowe's final interest rate decision and all bets are on another pause, which would leave the cash rate unchanged for a third month at 4.1%. So economists are saying this pause is likely going to last for about a year before going back down late next year. And that's all because inflation has been coming down faster than expected. Unemployment is starting to increase. Company profits are down and economic growth is is low. So not not some great factors there. And also yesterday, Tom, we learnt that household spending is going backwards. Yeah, it went backwards 0.7% in the 12 months to July. And this was the first decline since February 2021. So back in the dark days of COVID lockdowns. And this fall in consumer spending was driven by a drop of spending on furnishings and household equipment down nearly 8%. Clothing and footwear was down 7.5% and recreation and culture down almost 4%. So people are really pulling back, which means these big interest rate increases have been working. And I think at 4.1% will continue to work. Yeah, so I guess the the other part of this, Tom, is um, the end of an era for Philip Lowe. I mean, he has been, uh, I guess, pulled through the coals lately for comments that he made, which a lot of people say led um, some people to get mortgages and, and assume that interest rates weren't going to go up. But he did oversee 29 consecutive board meetings that left interest rates unchanged when he commenced his stint as RBA chair. There was a lot of business as usual for a long time. Um, we've got a new chief coming in now, a, a woman. And yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens next. And the foster mother of missing toddler William Tyrrell has pleaded guilty to assaulting another child in a Sydney home two years ago. So the 58-year-old woman and her husband are on trial in a Sydney court this week over the charges. And they were charged by police after listening devices were placed in their home during the William Tyrrell investigation. And those devices allegedly captured both parents assaulting and intimidating this other child. The court has heard one of the incidents involved a kick to the thigh of the child. Um, we should point out again, this child is not William Tyrrell. The other involved the woman hitting the child with a wooden spoon. The foster father will be fighting all the charges against him. Somebody once told me the world is 
Smash Mouth frontman Steve Harwell has died at the age of 56 after a battle with liver failure. Harwell apparently passed away peacefully and comfortably with family and friends by his side at his Idaho home. His voice is super well known to any of us who grew up in the 90s. Um, Smash Mouth was founded in 1994. It had a huge hit with uh, Walking on the Sun and then embraced by a whole new generation of kids um, when their hit All-Star and I'm a Believer was featured in the movie Shrek. Yeah, it was such an iconic sound of the 90s. Um, It sort of had a little bit of that scar style to the music, which was a big thing at the time, sort of a crossover with scar, punk, reggae, pop. Um, and just that voice really cut through. So a sad day for Steve Harwell and his family. Um, interesting to see that they have already recruited a new frontman and are, are still touring in the US, Smash Mouth. So there's a new frontman called Zach Good. That would be um, big shoes to fill um, for Zach. Um, but, yeah, much love band and a very unique sound. And for anyone following along from the sidelines of all the action happening at Burning Man, the situation is turning around a little bit. People have begun leaving the Nevada desert after being trapped for days now by muddy conditions. And they are going to go ahead and burn the big wooden man tonight, American time. Uh, The big burn was meant to happen on Saturday night, but it's been postponed twice now. Also, Aussie singer Casey Donovan is among those um, who says she's safe. She's been posting to her social media. Uh, so people are getting out, but apparently a big mess is being left behind, Tom, because people have had to walk out. Um, so they've left all their campsites. Mm. And, you know, I was saying to you yesterday about the toilet situation, it apparently was as diabolical <laughs> as I thought it might be. Yeah. I mean, look, I sort of in my mind imagined this was just going to get worse and worse and turn into the ultimate horror story. But apparently the rain has passed and yet slowly drying out. And there were some amazing stories of escape, but people will be able to start leaving. I did read that the the White House um, said that President Biden had been briefed on the situation at Burning Man. And administration officials were in touch with state and local officials. So, you know, people are taking it pretty seriously in America. Yeah, as they should. I mean, nobody wants um, another Woodstock 99 or another hectic situation. And, you know, we should say there there was a death reported, um, but police have now confirmed that the death at that event is unrelated to the bad weather. All right, right after this message, I'm going deep on the John Farnham track being used for the Yes campaign with a story you might not have heard about this song. It's a magnificent ad that shows a very important narrative of this nation. You know, there's been many things that we've done in this country, many decisions that we've made that we've felt anxious about, that we've debated. But on the other side of that, our country has become a better place. So that's Megan Davis. She was one of the architects of the Uluru Statement and she made the big announcement on Sunday about John Farnham's track being used on the Yes campaign's big ad that's been rolling out since Sunday. You might have seen it already, cut to John Farnham's voice. The ad shows these big moments in history like the 1965 referendum, 
our victory in the America's Cup in the 80s. There's Kathy Freeman winning gold at the Sydney Olympics, Marbo, and John Howard's gun laws after the Port Arthur massacre. To learn more about the song itself, we've got Zan Rowe with us with the backstory. Zan, of course, is my former Triple J colleague. She's now the Double J music correspondent. Zan, tell us, who actually wrote the song? Tom, it was actually some British songwriters that wrote John Farnham's biggest hit. Uh, Chris Thompson, Maggie Ryder, Keith Reed, who played in a band called Procol Harum, and also Andy Kunter, who played in Ice House but was actually a British muso. And the inspiration for this song first came to Chris after a 1985 nuclear disarmament rally. It was being held in London's Hyde Park. Chris overslept and missed it. He was really mad at himself <laughs> that he hadn't turned up for it. So while he was at home watching the protest on TV in Instead, he, Maggie Ryder and Andy Kunter began writing this song. And Chris actually sang the demo. He wanted to record it for his own solo album, but then his publisher talked him out of it. He said, protest songs are old news. They're not selling anymore. Um, Don't do it. And so that's where the beginnings of this song uh, first kicked off. And legend has it that Andy Kunter, um, who, as I said, was playing in Ice House, was coming to Australia. He passed it along to Farnham's team. And even though there was resistance that Farnham should be allowed to record it, Chris didn't want him to record it. He was knew that John Farnham had recorded Sadie, the cleaning lady. He thought of him as this hmm. kind of teeny bopper, um, you know, teen star and not a serious artist. But finally he did. And, of course, that combination of Farnsey's voice, the synths, the samplers, the iconic bagpipes made it the biggest hit of that year in Australia. And it was the saving grace of John Farnham's career. So let's go back to the writing of the song. I didn't know that it was written in the UK to start with, but really the context for it as a protest song was about nuclear disarmament. Yeah, and I think that this is the sort of cornerstone of what makes all pop songs great. They can work in a whole bunch of different contexts. They can be open. It's definitely a song about unity. If you think about how much this song has travelled since that time it was written in 1985, this is a song that everyone sings along to. It can mean whatever it needs to mean to you at that moment. I used to DJ this at the Falls Festival every <laughs> year and every DJ has done this. They've turned down the, the volume and had everyone sing along. Everyone knows the words to this song, but it was kind of an anti-war song to begin with. But it was also very much about making your voice heard and it came at a time of individualism in the mid-80s where we felt as though as individuals we could change the world. So it's both that feeling of individualism but also coming together as a group, you know, waking up to your own power for the greater good that was really the seed of, of You're the Voice. Zan, the other interesting thing you said before was about where this landed in terms of John Farnham's career, that he was seen as quite uncool at the time. So, so how did that come about? How did he actually end up getting to voice this song even though the writers thought he was a bad option for it. (laughs) Didn't want him to go anywhere near it. (laughs) Yeah. And how long did it take to tank off? It was a pretty quick hit as soon as it was released and um, Farnham was having a really hard time of it when when this song came into his hands. You know, he'd been spending the last 20 years singing pop songs to teen girls. He was really trying to create an adult performer persona. He'd actually stepped in as the new lead singer of the Little River Band because they had had Glenn Shorrock leave the band and John Farnham had stepped in and the two albums that he recorded with Little River Band 
tanked. So he was in the wilderness. Radio wouldn't Mm. play him. People didn't take him seriously. And then this song comes along and Glenn Wheatley, who was the manager of Little River Band and became the manager, iconically, of John Farnham as well, saw something in this song and said, this is the moment. But he had to convince the songwriters to let Farnham use it. And I think that once you hear it, and now we know in retrospect, it is his voice. It's Farnsey's voice that makes this song great. It is an excellent pop song. You've got the beautiful synths and samplers that David Hirschfelder put all through it. Of course, you've got the iconic bagpipes, which I will say were John Farnham's idea. He Mm. loved the effect of Long Way to the Top by ACDC and the bagpipes on that. So he wanted bagpipes and using the bagpipes actually meant that they had to redo the whole song in B flat because that's the only key that bagpipes can play in. That was Farnsey's idea. So all of these moments go towards making this a hit song. But of course, if you think about Farnham's voice in this, you know, it is the embodiment of You're the Voice. It rises and rises. It's a voice that's being pushed to the limits and it makes you want to go to your limits. You know, it really unifies. And so this is how it came into his hands, much against a lot of opposition. And um, even though it took a little bit of convincing from Glenn Wheatley, literally taking around cassettes to radio stations and saying, just play this. Once they did, the audiences screamed out for it. It was a song that everyone wanted to hear and it became one of the biggest songs on Australian radio that year. That was Zan Rowe, Double J Music Correspondent. That is such a classic story that the song was actually written by a British muso too disorganised to get up in time for a nuclear disarmament rally in London in 1985. Let's go to the politics of it. We'll get a highly qualified opinion on how well this song could actually work Dee Madigan is an advertising creative director. Um, She runs her own agency called Campaign Edge, and she does a lot of work for Labor and the unions and currently is, so full disclosure there. She's an um, open supporter of The Voice. She's had a lot of success in her career with political campaigns. She's also a regular on Gruen. Dee, thanks for joining us. Do you think the use of John Farnham's hit will have much impact? I think what it does do is allow a bit of a reset on the campaign because up until now people have been saying the yes campaign you know hasn't really got going or hasn't really engaged anyone so you know i think that's what this is about it's about really engaging the supporters to keep going because you know the polling obviously isn't looking that good for it so um sort of a sugar hit at the moment is really important okay and what do you know about songs and political campaigns is it a tool that you reach for much in the work that you've done on political campaigns And do they work and have they worked in the past? Okay, so we don't tend to use songs in political campaigns for the very pragmatic reason that we can't afford them (laughs) Um, because they generally cost money. But also most songwriters are really reluctant to let their song be used in a campaign for for a whole lot of good reasons. Like often, like it won't be used in an ad, but, but... Um, They will often be used for campaign launches and things like that. So musicians will sort of say, look, you can use it, you know, for your um, conference or for your launch, but not, you know, in an ad itself. I mean, the real danger is actually using a song that you haven't asked permission for and then Mm. the musician coming out and telling you how much they hate you (laughs) for doing it. So in Australia, when the Tasmanian Liberals used Hunters and Collectors Holy Grail for their 2002 campaign launch. The band responded with, we are disgusted 
by the appropriation of our much-loved anthem by a political party that we utterly despise. Mm. And then don't forget that Julian Assange actually did a spoof of You're the Voice for his 2013 bid for the Senate, but it was so freaking weird, um, you know, <laughs> that we um, didn't do it. So apart from Labor, it's time, which was actually commissioned for it, and then James Blundell did a really great one for Bob Catter's 2013 campaign, which was it doesn't matter, Bob Catter, that you're posh or arty. What matters, Bob Catter, is your Australia party. So normally you'd get one actually written for the campaign itself rather than try and convince a music, uh, an existing um, track that you should be allowed to use it. Okay, so the It's Time song in 1975 when Gough Whitlam came into power, do you think the song had a big influence on that result? Yeah, but I think what what it was was actually tapping into the mood of the time. And that's what really good campaigns do. They amplify existing sentiment. And what you had in that time was this mood for change, for societal change that was much bigger than just political. And I felt like that song really encapsulated that. There was there was a positivity and an activism about um, people of that time and that's why that song worked, whereas if you did that now people would be like, what? because we're much more cynical about um, political institutions particularly. So the use of the John Farnham track, The Voice, has already come up against some challenges. One is coming from the opposition who are saying, look at the lyrics, you're The Voice, try and understand it. They say that encapsulates the main problem with The Voice, that you can't understand it or Australians don't understand it. So what do you make of these headwinds that it's already coming up against? The general punter out there will not know or care about that. I think they actually just like the song and because they like the song, they will be more interested in seeing the ad. And the reality is I think most of the arguments about the campaign have been happening on a very rational basis about information and what people know and don't know. But what we know is that all purchasing decisions are made emotionally and choosing to support a campaign, choosing to support a political um, party, all those are purchasing decisions. And the first step is to make people feel something. If, if you can't mm. make people feel something, you can't make them do something. So I think that's why this is, is a good um, start for the Yes campaign. Yeah, for me, when I heard the news, I went, wow, that's a great choice. That's a powerful song that everyone can get behind. Surely that's got to have a positive impact. I mean, given what you just said, that it's often about feelings as much as the intellect, what do you think? Do you think it's been a really smart call? I think it's exactly the right song for the campaign. And because John Farnham, he's not some elitist guy as well, so mm. so the, it, it helps inoculate against some of the accusations against the campaign that it is, you know, elitist. This is, this is Farnsy, mate. It's Farnsy, yeah. not elitist. That's a really good point. This is a song that crosses all class divides. It is, and if you look at the footage in the ad itself, it's the same kind of thing. They've just sort of picked moments where Australia was... Um, brought together. And again, I think it's important because it helps inoculate against um, the other accusation is that this is divisive. And what it's showing is actually when Australians come together on an issue or an event, whether it be um, marriage equality, whether it be the America's Cup, you know, whatever, there's actually a really positive feeling that we all enjoy. And I think that's what this is tapping into. It's reminding people um, of the good things in Australia when we come together on things. That was Dee Madigan from Campaign Edge, an advertising agency that does a lot of work for labour and union campaigns. Personally, I, I think this ad is pretty amazing and the soundtrack really helps. On a very simple level, it feels really good, really positive. 
And as Dee was just saying, I think that does count for a lot for us human beings. We, we often do go from gut feel rather than the fine details on that intellectual level. Will that be enough in the case of this referendum? Well, certainly not on its own, but strap in. We are going to find out in less than six weeks. Listener.